Hello and welcome to the Swan Song Project podcast. My name is Ben Buddy Slack and I'm the founder of the Swan Song Project and the host of this podcast. The Swan Song Project is a charity We're based here in England and we help people who are facing the end of their lives through eternal illness or otherwise, uh, or dealing with a bereavement, to write and record an original song. We believe in celebrating lives, making memories and leaving legacies. If you'd like to find out more about the charity, you can check out our website, which is swansongproject.co.uk. The podcast features songwriters. Each episode have a different guest on. I ask them to share one of their songs. We talk about how they wrote it. I ask them to share a songwriting tip. I also ask them to share a song that's meaningful to them in some way related to bereavement. This episode features a big hero of mine, Mr. Mike Scott of the Waterboys. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, today I'm here with Mike Scott. Thanks for joining me, Mike. You're very welcome, Ben. Yeah, we're looking forward to this conversation. Um, so this is the Swan Song Project podcast. For anyone new to this, um, each episode I have a different songwriter on, and uh, we have three sections. First, I ask for one of my guest songs, and we'll have a chat about how they wrote that. Section two, and we'll ask Mike to share a songwriting tip with us. And then section three, we're going to talk about songs that's meaningful to Mike in some way related to bereavement. Um, so what song of yours have you chosen for us today, Mike? I've chosen F- Fisherman's Blues. So Fisherman's Blues is a it's a classic because one of those it's been a, a big favorite song of mine for a long time and I'll put the link in the description if anybody's not heard the song uh, I highly recommend going and checking it out. Um, so what can you tell us about writing Fisherman's Blues, Mike? Well, the lyric Ben was written on an aeroplane. I was flying from New York to London at the end of a uh, an American tour. A couple of band members were leaving. Uh, it, it, it was like that moment in the Bob Dylan song, the carpet too is moving under you. Do you know that line out of it's all over now, baby? Everything yeah, was changing yeah. around me. The people I was working with were changing. I, I didn't have anywhere to live at the time. I mean, it wasn't wasn't on the streets, but, but I'd moved out of my flat and I was living out of my suitcase. I, my destiny was unknown. And I'd been in a, a, a very difficult relationship with a lady who was 10 years older than me. I, I've... I, I'd been on and off with this lady for about three or four months. It was a short relationship. Nevertheless, at the end of it, I felt like I'd, uh, I'd been, been dragged around by a wild horse with one of my feet in the stirrups. Yeah. It, it was a, a, I wouldn't say traumatic, but it was a bracing experience that mm. educated me very, very fast. And as I got on that plane in New York, I was leaving not only the American tour, but also that relationship. And I, I could feel some lyrics and some feelings coming on. And I, I went inside my pocket because I, I needed someone to write on. And I had an envelope. It must have been from a letter someone had written me or something like that. And I wrote the first verse, I wish I was a fisherman tumbling on the sea far away from dry land and its bitter memories. And the whole of that first verse was on the envelope. And, and, and I didn't think any more about it. It was just, a, I'd, I'd caught the lyric, and my, my, for now my job was done. But about six weeks later, uh, things had begun to, to change for me and I'd, I'd moved to Ireland. And I went into a recording studio with the band for the first session of what eventually became the Fisherman's Blues album. And it was a, a very wonderful recording session. And we, we, set, we set up in a circle and we're improvising and we were playing our, our floating repertoire of folk, country, Bob Dylan and original songs and recording them. 
but in a very, very low pressure way. We weren't thinking, oh my God, we're making a record. We've got to get this right. It was nothing like that. It was just, we were playing for pleasure. And, and during a lull in the proceedings, I thought, oh, maybe maybe that lyric that I had on that envelope might might be useful. And, and I must have got all my, all my lyrics and scraps of paper and, and so on in, in a folder that I had with me in the studio. And so I found the lyric and I started strumming it and, and the tune came. And as soon as the tune came, the, the next two verses came. And I played it to the band. I think I was on piano actually at first and I played it down to the band and they picked it up and, and Steve, our fiddler, who did this, this wonderful fiddle line. And uh, it didn't work quite right on piano. So I switched to guitar. And suddenly when I was in guitar, everything came into focus. And we recorded it in one or two takes. And that was it. Suddenly we had this new song and it was so new in, in style for the Waterboys. I, I almost couldn't, I, I couldn't assess it. I couldn't tell what it was like. It was so new. I remember sit, sitting in, in someone's flat a couple of nights later, the place where I was staying uh, temporarily uh, and listening to it and thinking, what kind of music is this? I, I, I don't know what it is. It's a country <laughs> rhythm, but it's not country music. It's not folk. What is it? And it was something certainly in the world of the in the ecosystem of the Waterboys. It was something entirely new, and and therefore thrilling. So that was the first one of that kind of that kind of new sound, and that was the first one that you that you came to. So. Well. I, I had been dabbling in writing country and Western songs for a little mm. while. So I had a few in a similar rhythm, but they were much more country than Fisherman's Blues. Fisherman's Blues went in a different, a, a kind of unique direction. I, I still don't really know what kind of music it is. Mm. Some people say it's country rock, but it's not country rock. It's not really country music. It's a country rhythm, but it's, I think it's more a rock and roll song really. And my vocal is rasping and it's, it's full of emotion. It ain't no country and western vocal, man. No, no, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's one of them songs that gets it's it emotionally gets me quite regularly without yeah. without thinking about why, you know, it's just something just pulls on it sometimes. Um, and I think part of it is the vocal delivery of it, but something in it for me, it's always one of them songs where like you know, I kind of my music career was in kind of Irish traditional Irish sessions, you know, like, and it feels like it's. It's one of those songs that I think strongly of when everyone's sat around with the guitar. Someone's, yeah. someone's going to play Fisherman's Blues and it's like, oh, great, everyone can get involved with this. And Yeah. yeah. It's very easy to play as well, Ben. Mm, yeah. yeah. The, the yeah. tricky bit, the tricky bit in playing it is the chorus where one of the chords is missed out. Yeah. And the first two choruses, it goes from G to F to A minor. And then instead of going up to the C, which it does usually in the verses, it goes straight back to the G for the start of the instrumental line. And, mm. and, over the years, the Waterboys have auditioned many players, and I can always tell if they're going to get the job, <laughs> whether they catch that chorus. Yeah. <laughs> How did the um, did the chorus come naturally? From so you say you had the first verse written on the. I really liked what you said when you said about writing it. You said that you um, caught the lyric and that your job was done there. Is that a way you think about um, when you get an idea? Do you is it like? That's it. You feel like you've got to, you catch it, and you know when you've caught that that idea, and you come back to things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was on an airplane. I wasn't really in a position to 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 write the whole lyric. I, I 
didn't have any more coming at that point. So mm. I just filed it and knew it would come later. There's not really any, I find in songwriting that time isn't a factor. Time mm. doesn't really exist. If I, if I go back, I can go back to a half lyric that I wrote 30 years ago and think myself into the same place and, and work on it as if no time has passed. And do you feel like, so with that, you're saying the initial part was influenced by everything that's going on when you were believing on that plane and the relationship and things like that. Yeah. Did the rest of the lyrics, were you thinking about, about particular things when you were writing them or did they just come out of you without too much thought or were you, you know, were you trying to follow on a particular story or anything or did it just, did it just kind of fall out of you? I stayed with the same feelings. I wrote from the same feelings. Uh, and for that second verse about the, the hurtling fevered train, I remembered a poem that we'd done in school when I was a child about, about the mail train. I can't remember the name of the poem. I, I did used to know and I've forgotten, but it's a fairly famous English poem. Uh, and, and in the poem, the, the, the delivery of the words mimics or, or invokes rather, in, invokes the rattling driving power of the train. It's in the rhythm of the train. Uh, and that came into my head, flashed into my head as I was writing the lyric. Mm. Yeah, it's a great lyric. Um, it's, yeah, it's a great song. Um, and really, one of the things that I really love about um, quite a lot of your music is like, like you say, it's quite a simple structure musically, you know, the chord sequence anyway that repeats yeah. but and then and something that i always love when artists can do can do that and, and keep the song interesting and exciting with the where the chord sequence repeats um yeah. and so like you know, there's a couple of your other big songs like this is the sea and hold the moon things like where it's a similar kind of not a similar structure but you know a chord sequence that repeats but there's yeah. you kind of have to use different ways to then keep the song exciting is that something that you do consciously or that you kind of particularly draw upon to like think about? I learned Ben at the feet of the Velvet Underground who were the mm. masters of the two chord song. <laughs> Heroin on the first Velvet Underground is the mother of all two chord songs. And you see in most pop music, the, the, the writers and performers use hooks, choruses, traditional or, or slightly adjusted song formats, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, etc., and And little twists and touches. But the Velvet Underground used almost none of that. And on heroin, it's like the, the, the relentlessness of the two chords that they stick with creates a kind of pressure cooker, creates mm -hmm. a tension. And within that, they use um, transcendent lyrics, uh, dramatic, off-the-scale, um, wild musicianship like John Cale's um, unmelodic viola, uh, and they use uh, hip hypnotic, a hypnotic quality in the drums and in the voice. And I love that. I love this this flipping of all values and holding it in the pressure cooker of a two-chord song, and and. and Two chord songs is something that that uh, Patty Smith used to do as well. She mm. has a one on on her first album, Horses, called Birdland, which is a G to an F and just goes round and round and round. And it, and and in this one, again, the two the two chords provide the pressure cooker, but within that, instead of traditional or conventional hooks and so on or structure, 
she uses dynamics. It starts very, very quiet and restrained, and it builds up to, to a, a huge emotive and, and in some parts, atonal climax. And then it reduces again to a kind of organized, disciplined, quiet ending. And it's very beautiful how moving that is. And the, the, the human heart doesn't really have to have a, a conventional structure in a song to, to be moved. So I loved working in those ways. And see, when punk rock happened, it, it freed a lot of musicians who, who were not technologically proficient in the way that pre-punk you thought you had to be. It freed a lot of guitar players who couldn't play, like Richie Blackmore or, or all that, or Jeff Beck. And, and it freed songwriters as well. And, and I, I am one of the, those musicians who came through the floodgates opened by punk. And I have always liked working with repetitive chord sequences, sometimes two chord songs. I've got many, I've got We Will Not Be Lovers on the Fisherman Blues album, A Pagan Place, on the album of the same name. Hole of the Moon is almost a two chord song, except that each of the two chords has, has a twist in them. This is the C, almost a two chord song, and many others over the years. And I love pushing the boat out like that and, mm. and finding new forms and, and seeing what can I put in the pressure cooker of a two chord song? I'm not gonna do what the Velvet Underground did or what Patti Smith did, but what can I do? And I, I love doing that. I should say, when I was doing it in the 80s with the songs like Big and Blaze, I wasn't thinking about it. It was instinctive. Mm. Now I'm more aware of the process. And if I were to do a two-chord song, I wonder if there's any on the new Waterboys album. I'd have to have a think about that. I would be aware of it and mm. playing with the form. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask of whether, whether when you... Oh. Oh. Tokyo calling, back in a minute. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so yeah, so we were just talking about the, the two-chord song and um, yeah, being conscious of choosing to write a two-chord song or doing it yeah. more naturally and intuitively as you, you said you used to do then. I really yeah. like the description of the pressure cooker. I hadn't heard it described like before, but it does, it does that makes a lot accurately, sounds very accurate the way you describe it, Yeah, being a pressure cooker and um, that kind of tension that you can feel in it. And, yeah. yeah, it's a powerful technique. I'll tell you who uses very simple chord sequences and sometimes very repetitive is Taylor Swift. Mm. I've been listening to her, her Evermore album with my daughter for the last few weeks. And some of the songs are incredibly simple chord wise. There's a, a great one called Champagne Problems. Maybe you've heard it. And it's, it's a four chord sequence, but it just repeats right through the song. Mm. And the, the magic is in Taylor's choice of melodies. She's an incredibly melodic singer and writer. And what she chooses to do with her, her melodies and her voice over a, a simple repeated four chord sequence is, is lifts her into the level of greatness, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with that much of her work, but we're going to talk about one of her songs a bit later on in the podcast, aren't we? Which, um, yeah, is, is quite exceptional, really. <laughs> I heard it, I was listening to it. So, so yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting a bit more about her. Um, it's one of the things that I remember, like, when I was first learning music, I think it's something that a lot of people, when, when they're first starting out, they think like you need to learn more and more to write better and better songs. Whereas I don't know, a lot of times you find, like, do you find a difference between writing songs with complicated chord sequence or sequ you know, or simple ones? It's like, it's not that 
you know, I just remember being shocked when I learned a few chords and people saying, oh, well, you can play this song now, you know, three chords and that song's on it. I was like, oh, wow. I kind of assumed I have to learn all the chords before I could learn any songs that I liked. Um, well, there's a lot to be said for writing with simple chords, but there's a lot to be said for writing with complicated chords. I mean, if you're John Lennon and Paul McCartney or David mm -hmm. Bowie, my God, the chords that they had in their songs. <laughs> Amazing. Bowie, and even in something like Space Oddity, the choice of chords is... is incredibly musical i gotta gotta respect that that skill and 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 also with bowie with those complicated chord chords that he used he never got it never it never felt dry sometimes very mm. technical music in at least in the in the pop medium can feel very dry that's one of the reasons that punk rock happened but with mm. Bowie, it was never so. And also, to, the, to Bowie's great credit and the Beatles, they could also write very simple songs. Yeah. You know, the Beatles also wrote One After 909. Bowie wrote Hang On To Yourself. So uh, they were able to be uh, gloriously dumb in a sort of Louis Louie, Gonzo mm. fashion when they needed to be. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like knowing the rules to then be able to break them. Exactly. And, or, or rather, that there are no rules. Oh, there's no rules in general, yeah. Yeah. And I guess, like, do you, like, when you have an idea comes through, the, uh, I guess it's, do you think of it, do you like, do you follow an idea in, like, especially, like, you know, the stage of your career you're at now where you've got such a knowledge of different types of songs and have written so many different styles, like, What's that process like when, you, when an idea comes? Do you know, like, oh, this is going to be in this kind of style, or this is going to be in this kind of style, or I'm going to use this type of way to write this song, or do you just, does it just unfold naturally and goes in whatever direction it goes? It's fairly natural. I, I try not to think too much about, about it. I, mm -hmm. I like to be guided by what I hear in my head rather than my thought processes. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I write a song and I'm wondering what to put on it, or how to decorate it, I, I, I'll, I'll listen. I'll listen to what my sort of orchestra in my head is suggesting while, while I play the song down through the speakers. I don't think too much. I try not to think too much. I like the phrase you said, decorating it. So do you, would you come up with a, like a core melody and maybe chord sequence and then add, add other things on top? And do you hear the, like, I'd like to add something like this or? Well, the songs come in all different ways, Ben. Um, there's no single way for me. I, I might use a, a, a lyric phrase as a way into a song or a title sometimes, or it might be a, a, a passage of chords, a, a short chord sequence that begins a song or a, or a, a phrase of melody. I'll use any, any way to get into a song. Once I'm into it, generally the music and the lyrics help each other. I use each of them as a building block to do the other. Once I get the first bit of the tune, I can sing nonsense lyrics that form themselves into real lyrics. Once I've got part of a lyric, I can figure out what it is I'm trying to say and, and work on that. So I use both. Do you have a sense of when a song's finished? Like what's... Yeah. <laughs> yes. so I'm, always, I'm always interested in like, you know, because obviously you could just endlessly write new things, but do you have a, is there a clear point with, obviously it'd be different for a different song, I imagine, but like a feeling or something that you have when like that's, that song's done its, done its job there? Yeah, usually it comes when I, when I keep trying to add things and they're, they're superfluous. That's usually mm. what I Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
Um, going back to Fisherman's Blues again. So it was, yeah, what you're saying about, you know, taking a while to kind of assess it and feel like, because it was so different to your previous stuff. I'm just quite interested in how, what that was like. And then because it was, that was the first album since This Is The Sea, wasn't it? Yeah. So like it is quite a departure musically. It's quite a different style. Um, but obviously it was, it was brilliant. It was hugely successful. How, what was that feeling like of, had you decided that you wanted to do an album in that kind of style or was it kind of more just following it? And then I guess, yeah, what I think is, is how nervous was it like putting out something so different from your previous album? And did you, did you know that, you know, this is, this is going to be good or this is going to be well received. That's just a better way of describing it. Well, it was a very long process, as you probably know, Fisherman Blues was nearly three years from first recording session to release. Uh, and so there were many developments during that time. Fisherman Blues, the song was written right at the beginning on the very first day, which was January 1986. And within a few weeks, we did a, a little surprise gig in Dublin. And that was the, the sort of live premiere of that sound. Mm -hmm. And then when we went on tour, we did a, a big UK tour a few months later, still ostensibly touring This Is The Sea, but with the new sound, or rather a combination of the This Is The Sea more electric sound and the Fisherman Blues more acoustic sound. Um, and we played lots of songs like Fisherman Blues on that tour that hadn't been released, and that was the audience's first hearing of them. But it, it went really well, and I, I didn't have any sense that it's going to be difficult to to sell the new sound or to persuade people. The songs were very popular. When the record came out in 1988, there had been a lot more changes by then. And the, the, the difficulty with Fisherman Blues was we recorded so much material and it was very hard to, to whittle it down to a single album. In fact, I, I consider it probably my only regret is that I didn't make that a double or even a triple record or yeah. get it a lot earlier because we had enough really, really top quality music recorded in the first six or seven months that would have made it a great album. But uh, we, the changes were so profound in the sound of the band that in the same way that I, I didn't know how to assess the song Fisherman's Blues when we first did it, I didn't know how to measure the quality of what we were doing in the studio. Because we, we, we weren't layering songs in that 1980s way, which is how This Is A Sea in A Pagan Place had been done in The Whole of the Moon. We were, we were playing in a circle in the studio, capturing performances. And I didn't have sufficient experience of that method of recording to make the right decisions. Now, if I'd been Neil Young, I would have known, it doesn't matter if there's a mistake here, you're selling a feeling. The overall feel of this track is beautiful, and that's what people will respond to. It doesn't matter if the drummer speeds up a little bit or someone played a slightly blurred note here. But raised as I was on, on 1980s recording techniques, I, I thought, oh, no, we can't use that because it speeds up a little bit at the end of the second verse, or well, we can't use that because of the, the bass is slightly out there and I couldn't couldn't find a way to fix it because it's on all the different tracks because we played live. And they, these complications like that stopped me from being able to see it. And that's why the record went on for such a long time. So by the time it came out, there had been so many musical changes that it was like a different different world. And I think that was a lot for, for the audience to take. 
Yeah, I guess the um, like you said, being able to, to test run the songs on those tours is a good a good indication of gauging yeah. a bit of how people respond to them. Yeah, it um, it just it feels like it mimics a bit of um, Springsteen's gap between Born to Run and Dark Side of Town, which was also three years, wasn't it? Yeah, ten years later as well, 75, 85, 78, 88. Yeah. yeah, and again going for quite a different sound and like writing loads and loads of songs and then trying to whittle it down to the album. Yeah, a few other similarities too. The, the, he had management troubles that precluded mm -hmm. him from releasing the record. And, and I had a, a bit of management trouble. It wasn't as maybe as serious or it didn't go to court like Brucey's ones did. But but I did have some some prevailing circumstances upon me at the time that, that made it in some ways fortuitous that the record took a long time. And similarly, I guess, having such a big hit album and then a long gap before your next one as well. I was obviously Born to Run being such a big hit and this is the C being a big hit and then a, you know, a long time before the next record. Yeah, that. funny, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. strange. <laughs> um, so yeah, moving on, I, I asked Mike beforehand if he'd mind me asking about another another song. Um, so yeah, The Whole of the Moon is, uh, it's just, it's a very special song to me. Uh, so I was really kind of keen to to ask you about it. Um, and it's one of, like, yeah, it's just, it's a song that fascinates me. It's one of them songs where like, so I always think with songs, what I want, an ideal song for me is a song that I can, I can appreciate on all levels, you know, so that you can hear it for the first time, but like, oh yeah, I like that. And something about you, the groove or the, just the feel of it catches you yeah. and you really like it. And then like, the more you listen to it, the more you get out of it. Um, and that's what I feel like the whole of the moon is like, it's, it's almost a perfect example of that for me. That it's one of them songs that for years, it's just, you know, I'd come on at parties or things like that. And I'd hear it, like, oh yeah, this song's great. Can I sing along and dance to this one. And then the more and more I listen to it, the more I feel like like I get out of it. Yeah. Um, in a way, I think it's just like I think it's just remarkable. Like the, and again, it's such a good example of using, like, say that simple repetitive chord structure, but the way the lyrics and the the phrasing of the lyrics come in in different ways and and build upon and the instrumentation of it. It's just. Yeah, it's just it's just a song that like always just holds a very special place to me. Mm. Um, that's not really a question. <laughs> it's just I'm trying to kind of not be too much of a fanboy with it. But um, I guess like, and I've I've heard I've read some things about you talking about writing it before. But I guess anything you could say about writing it, and I guess how do you feel about a song like that now? You know, like after it's been, mm. you know, such a it feels it feels like one of them songs to me that like everyone knows. It's like you know it's been in. Even if people don't know, they know it. Like you play it, like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that song. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love the song very much. It, mm. it grew very organically. I had mm. the first verse, like Fisherman Blues. I had a verse and then went back to it later. And I wrote the words over a period of a few months. I was writing lots of other songs at the same time, and I would go back and add a little bit to it, and then go back a few days later, and so on. And I recorded a couple of piano vocal demos of it during the early part of the This Is The Sea album sessions. And then the, the actual record was done towards the end of the album with me playing piano along with a drum box. Boom, cat, boom, cat, that rhythm. And then my sort of odd offbeat piano style and the vocal. And then the instruments went on one by one. I think the first thing that went on top of it was the trumpet solo, da -da 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 -da, which was a four-part solo done by Roddy Lorimer, who was our, our occasional trumpet player. 
he came to the studio and listened to it, took a tape home, worked at it overnight, came back the next day and nailed it. And then we put on Carl Wallinger's synthesizers. He played fantastic stuff on that, the amazing bass. Amazing bass line and his, his top synth part. I asked him to do something like 1999 by Prince. I didn't want him to rip it off or anything. Nothing that yeah, yeah. think, oh, that's not it. But, but something that served the same function within the, the context of the song. So he did. He, he came up with a really cool, funky riff. And bit by bit, it was layered up. And the last thing that went on was the Comet and the sax solo. And, and then it was, it was mixed. And, and, and I love it very much. And, and I, I love that it's, it's a world classic, man. Everybody knows it. I'm yeah. very proud of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just a remarkable song. It's one of them songs. That, and for me, like, it, it feels timeless. You know, yeah. and you're like lots of 80s stuff sounds very 80s, doesn't it? But that one just feels, I don't know if it, it does feel like, it doesn't feel tied to any period yes. of time it feels like it could have been written at any point and yeah what I, was that first lyric you had was it the was it the the chorus or was it one of the verses yeah I, I saw the crescent you saw the whole of the moon mm. yeah. do, you remember, do you remember what inspired that or did it just come oh, out of i do remember ben yeah. yeah i was in new york again new york playing a part in, in this song as well i was there for a couple of weeks and, I, I, and my girlfriend who was a canadian was staying with me in the hotel and we were walking up one of the streets it was winter and it was cold and we were walking up the street arm in arm and and she said to me well so is it easy to write songs and and i was showing off a bit for my new girlfriend and i said yeah it is easy look i'll start a song now and i pulled a piece of paper out of my pocket and uh, handy that i always did these bits of paper <laughs> And I, I looked around for inspiration and there was a crescent moon in the sky. I've checked this actually. I could never remember if it was a crescent or a full moon. But recently, because I'm, I'm writing a, a book about all of this, I, I, I recently checked out the phases of the moon for January 1985. And I found oh, wow. it was definitively a crescent moon in the sky of New York. And that gave me the idea, I saw the crescent, you saw the whole of the moon. And uh, I, I think as best I can remember, I think I wrote, about a verse worth of lyrics when we got back to the hotel and then nothing for several weeks until I went back to the song. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a great metaphor. It's one, I think one thing that I love about it as well is that like it's, it's seeing a quality in someone else that's not a, an obvious one. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, it's not like a normal love song where like the, the, the qualities are the obvious ones, but see, saying that someone sees something more and sees something in a different way and like i don't know it just feels like a very beautiful observation yeah it's a song about consciousness mm. and about how amazing it is to live in a world where there's always more to find out and and more to grow into yeah yeah it's remarkable and it's it's one of us you know tying into what we're what the swanson project's about and so that's well when i was i was reading some comments um on YouTube or something one time when I was watching it and it's it is quite a common song for people in relation to bereavement as well isn't it so I saw there's lots of comments of people yes. that the yes. song always reminds them of someone who, yes. who saw the whole of the moon yeah yes. and it's yeah it's something that comes up quite a lot on this podcast of people's songs that you know take on different meanings yeah um and it's one it's one of the beautiful things about them isn't it they've got a life of their own and can, yeah that's right yeah yeah but yeah, it's just a, a, a remarkable song. So thank you for writing it because it's given me a lot of joy over the years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's move into section two now, shall we? This is where I ask uh, my guests to share with us a songwriting tip. Um, so what would your tip be first, day, Mike? My tip is to 
to not give up when you're writing a song. If you're not quite satisfied with it, never accept, oh, it'll be okay. Mm. Always keep fighting. And, and I remember when I was a younger man uh, writing songs and, and if I wasn't satisfied with the song, I learned the discipline of always to keep fighting. Maybe take a break from it, but go back to it. Uh, and go back afresh and go back to where you left off and keep imagining, trying things, coming up with ideas until you get something that feels right. And, and, and I learned that when something feels right, I get a, a solid feeling in my guts. And when something's not right yet, I get a sort of itch in my guts. And I trust those feelings. I trust myself as a writer. So I trust my feelings. Uh, and that's, that's been one of the, the most useful lessons for me as a songwriter, to, to never give up until I'm properly satisfied. Mm. Never accept a, not quite what I want. Yeah, and quite a few examples we've talked about have been songs where you started them at one point and then come back to them quite a while later, haven't they? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Is that that gut feeling, is that something that you feel you've, developed your attunement to over time i'm thinking for someone who was starting out um any advice on knowing when that's right and knowing when it's not or it's a it's a self-awareness thing ben Mm. uh, and it comes with practice it's not going to come straight away i had been writing songs for 10 years before i i noticed those little feelings inside the itch that says it's not right and the the satisfaction that says yes it's good it was a long time and it was daily work and, and application and dedication and wanting to, to learn and write better and better and better. It really was my life. But it's a self-awareness thing. Maybe I could have come to it faster. I don't know if I'd had more confidence, perhaps. So maybe people can come, come to it faster than I did. But it's, it's being self-aware and listening inside or being, listening is maybe the wrong word, but being sensitive to to what your own instinct or intuition is telling you. Intuition is a great ally in songwriting. It's intuition that provides the next line, that provides the the unexpected musical twist. And it's also intuition for me that provides the, the, the spur that says it's not quite finished yet. Do you, do you finish like pretty much everything? Like sometimes the, uh, you can imagine you finish songs and throw them away sometimes. Like, do you try and finish every idea to some extent? If something's not working, I stop. I will stop working on it. If I've if I've exhausted all my all my wiles, mm. then I might leave it and I might think, okay, maybe this one doesn't want to happen. And I guess it's, yeah. there is a point. I, I I say don't give up, but I I mean don't give up when it's being productive. Mm. But if I've if I've worked on a song for a long time uh, and maybe I take a bit of distance sometimes I realize that one's not quite good enough it's not going to work yeah yeah and um I was gonna say that I guess another thing what's I feel like came up in some of the things we were talking about earlier is that an idea might you know like you might another influence might come to you it might be a year or so later that then is what that song needed to unlock Exactly, yes. Is that a part of it? And like, so imagine that, I guess, I'm sure it still happens, but like when you write songs, as long as you have like your your toolkit in a way, your trick bag of stuff that you can can use in it to make a song work is a lot bigger than someone starting out. 
And like when you're first starting out, you might only have a few tricks. And if they're not working, it might not be the songs wrong. It might be that you need to learn a new trick that That's you, yes. you might hear. So like if you're always open to new influences, you never know which one of your ideas they might. Yeah. It's good to listen to lots of music as well. Joe Strummer's law, to have output, you must have input. Mm, yeah, that's a good one, isn't that? Mm. Yeah. There was a, um, a Leonard Cohen quote that I, I love where he talk, he's talking about about finishing songs and he's there's something, he words it so articulately beautiful, I'm going to paraphrase it badly here, but it was something about finishing a song and feeling a sense of satisfaction from finishing it, but then realising that that satisfaction was relief from boredom of working on the song rather than actual satisfaction in the song being finished. Does that make sense? That he was pleased the song was finished, but he realised he wasn't actually pleased with the way the song was finished. He was just pleased to have said he'd finished it. Well, and then that wasn't have, good enough. I don't have that experience. Leonard's speaking for himself there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's a funny one. <laughs> I don't find it boring working on a song. I really, really love working on a song, even if it's difficult and it's a struggle. When I was a kid and I, I used to listen to records like the Beatles, Eleanor, Rigby and so on, I wanted to live inside the song. And when I'm writing a song, I am living in it, inside it. I love being there. Yeah. How long does it take you sometimes for songs? Like, do you have some songs that like go on and on? Or? Yes, of course. Yeah. Some songs, some lyrics come so fast that it's as long as it takes me to write it or type it. Uh, I've had a few like that. Pagan Place was one of those. All the things she gave me on the same album, that, that was, it was an instant lyric. It just rolled out as fast as I could write it. Uh, and other songs might be returned to over decades. Oh, I'll park yeah. a song. If I can get no further with it, I'll park it. But I might keep a note in my mind that it's a good idea. I should come back to that one. And then maybe many years later, I do. And whether it's the new influences that you suggested as a possibility, or maybe it's just just time or freshness, then then I might have a different approach to it that allows me to finish it. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Do you do you work to like a, a schedule with your writing? Like, do you say, like, I'm gonna sit down today and write for this amount of time, or do you go when you're inspired? Or I go uh, increasingly. I notice that I write when I need to. I'm so backed up with material, Ben, mm. uh, especially after lockdown. We've got a new album coming out in May and I've got the next one already finished. Oh, well. <laughs> Six CD box set of This Is The Sea finished with all the, the unreleased music all edited and EQ'd and so on. I've had so much time to work that, that almost it would be frustrating for me to write a new bunch of songs now because they're going to have to sit and wait for several yeah. It's going to be probably two years before I even record them. So I'd rather record them when they're fresh. So I kind of put my desire to write on pause. Now, that doesn't mean if I get a great idea, I'm not going to work on it. I am. But it means I'm not specifically casting around. Whereas mm -hmm. if I knew I was going to make an album and I had a studio booked in two months' time, I'd probably spend the time between now and then doing nothing but writing. So you can do it both ways. You can, you know, set yourself time and and crack on and write, and you can just let ideas come to you. Yeah, and I can do it either way. I, I don't really tend to write at the same time every day. Mm. 
I've done that a couple of times, but only in, in particular circumstances. I remember I had a writer's block once and I couldn't write. And, and so I tried this experiment of setting my alarm clock for 5 a.m. for five days in a row and with the, the, the preconception that each morning I would get up and kind of before the critical part of my brain woke up, I would write a song. Mm. And I did it. I wrote five songs and five very odd songs, but without any restraint, without any judgment or critical faculty brought to bear. Uh, and it was a really good experience. It really loosened, loosened my creativity. Yeah, and that's great. There's, yeah, I, I love hearing the different ways people, you know, approach things to, to mix yeah. things up. And um... yeah, well, I once did a work with with another another singer who wasn't very experienced at writing songs, and he, and he wasn't very disciplined. And uh, and I, I thought to myself, what does he need? He needs to work five days for the same period of time every day so that his his creative juices know that they're going to be required at these times on these days so i said to him right we're going to work from one till six for the next five days see you then and he came around to my, my little music room one till six uh, for the five days and and you know it was very interesting i noticed the first day was kind of chaotic and vague second day a little more organized third day ideas really beginning to flow fourth day and fifth day very productive so it worked i don't need to do that personally because i, I can write on the on the on the turn of a sixpence but but some people need the discipline and, and i was able to help that that cat yeah yeah and that's good advice i guess for anyone anyone trying to write and struggling that maybe you know maybe the way you're doing it isn't the best but it's suited for you and maybe you should try you know it being more structured or being less structured or different times of the day or whatever it's always worth a try isn't it like mm. my five times at 5 a.m in the morning it's worth a try yeah yeah it's gonna be fun if nothing else yeah it could be something different <laughs> yeah. yeah um there's something else i was gonna ask you i can't remember what it was um how it was anyway we'll, we'll move on if it comes back to me it comes back to me um oh yeah no i was just saying i, I was yeah i'm looking forward to the new album i was uh enjoying the new his new single out isn't there the um yeah all souls hill all souls hill yeah so i'm really looking forward to uh, the album comes out in may does it it comes out in may and it's interesting we're talking about songwriting this album's been done in a really different way yeah eight of the songs are have music in fact I think maybe all nine of the songs. I don't think I wrote the music on any of the songs. Oh, wow. Six of them are collaborations with a producer friend of mine who sends me tracks. He sends me a track and I, I develop the melodies and the vocal and write the lyrics. It's a really nice way of working because I've been doing songs for so long that sometimes I get a little bit bored with my own mm. types of chord sequences. And, and so working with music that other people send me in some ways is really good fun. And the last few albums we made, there might be one or two like that. But on this album, there are six. And then there's a, there are two cover versions. And then there's a, the last song is one that uh, our keyboard player wrote the music for. So while I've written most of the lyrics, I actually don't know how to play the songs. And we're going on tour in a few months. I've got to learn how to play the songs. <laughs> 
you know, usually I wrote them and I know exactly how to play them. I know everybody else should play as well. But this time is completely different. It's a very interesting experience. Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds great. And did you um, did you have like themes or lyrics in, in mind for like what you wanted to write about on this album? Or did you just hear the tracks and like respond to them? I heard tracks and responded to them. Mm. Oh, believe yeah, I'm really enjoying the new one. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the album. Um, are you, are you doing UK dates on that, that tour? No, we've just done a UK tour in October. So I don't think we'll be back in the, apart from festivals, we've mm. got a bunch of those, like uh, Cornbury and we're on Glastonbury. Um, but apart from that, nothing until 2023, I think, in the UK. Okay. Um, so let's move into section three now, the podcast. Uh, this is where I ask my guests to share with a song that's uh, meeting some that means something to them in some way related to bereavement uh, and what i do here is i put the link in the description so again it was a song that you're not familiar with you can pause pause us here and go and listen to it and come back um so which song have you chosen for us there's a marjorie by taylor swift from her album evermore yeah it's a beautiful song so um we touched on taylor slightly earlier um yeah she's someone that like i've you know obviously i know the big hits that you, you hear all the time on the radio but i've heard lots of people say about how how great a songwriter she is um, but I've never listened. To, I've not got around to listening to more of it yet. But I was really this. This song is uh, it's quite special, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it's about her grandmother, who was an mm. opera singer. And there's a, there's also a very very beautiful video of the song with with family movies of the grandmother and of Taylor as a little girl playing with the grandmother. And what caught my ear when I, I was listening to it with my daughter a couple of weeks ago, we'd bought the album because she likes Taylor. And what caught my ear was the first line. Uh, Never be so kind, you forget to be clever. Mm. Never be so clever, you forget to be kind. And I thought, that's one of these statements that sounds simple, but is really incredibly profound. Yeah. And what's it doing in this pop song? And I really paid attention. And within a, about a minute, she delivered this follow-up line. Never be so kind, you forget your power. Never wield such, oh no, never be so polite, you forget polite. your power. Never wield such power, you forget to be polite. My God, that was powerful. Because it's, it's, it's speaking to the, the sovereignty of the individual mm-hmm. and of the individual they're dealing with. It's incredible incredibly good advice and of course this was advice that her grandmother gave her i was wondering that if that was if that was where they came from they were things that a grandma would have said to her exactly exactly what the grandmother said and she's she's enshrined it in the song and in with such such elegance as well the melodies the the rhythm and there's this thing happens at the start of the song there's this bubbling sound with an echo on it uh, in the mid distance of the song. And it sounds, to some ears, it might sound like uh, little flashing lights in the background. To, to my ear, it sounds like the spirits of people who've gone beyond paying attention and, and giving witness. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. And the um, the chorus message as well, I think, is like, um, I can't remember the exact lyric, but it's, what's it, what's, what died didn't stay dead. I didn't stay dead, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, you're alive in my head, isn't it? And the yeah. it turns around. And yeah, it's like again, I feel like that's a sentiment that so many people 
connect to and relate to, but um, just expressed so beautifully. Yeah, and the next line, and 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 I should say they're all delivered as hooks. They're all melodic hooks. Taylor has this gift that everything she sings, every melody that she places in a song is is completely memorable. It, that's why she's the most successful artist of our times. She's a fantastic melodicist as well as lyricist. And the, the next line is that, if I didn't know better, I'd say you were with me now, mm. or you were talking to me now. And at the end of the song, she flips that. So beautiful. She flips it to, I know better, you're still around. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the bit about um, you're listening to me now, that flips as well, doesn't it? And it's singing to me now. Yep. And then, and then you hear, hear her voice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it seems like her grandma was, was, was an opera singer, was she? Yeah. I think. And then you can hear her voice. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful, um, yeah. beautiful way to record it. Have you noticed that the arrangement of the song picks up momentum? In the beginning, it's just a few instruments with those echoey light sounds in the background. And then halfway through, it's picking up, it's picking up. It, with every new development, it's picking up. And by the end, it's absolutely rollicking. There's no, no pressure. There's, yeah. no, there's no bombast whatsoever. It's all completely contained and elegant, but it's rollicking, man. Yeah. It's so powerful, masterful. And one of the things I thought was interesting as well, the kind of bridgey bit, um the the lyrics are quite unusual in like in their yeah. structure yes and it almost so one of the things i wondered about whether it's like whether you know almost like she's making a choice of like what i've got to say here is important in in its phrasing more so than tying it up into a neater package in a way i think you're right yes like um i i, I, I love it when people are like you know, it's those decisions, isn't it? Of like, I could make this fit a very simple meter um, that might work in a pop song better, or can. But what I really want to say is this, and then, and obviously, she's you know, she's such a good melodicist that then she still makes it work, uh, even if it's a bit unusual. Like when you kind of follow it, it's like, oh, oh, cool. <laughs> That's a yeah. very powerful verse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that something that you've done in in, in your writing much? When there's like, is the I guess like as many of your songs that you've written in memory of people and or have you ever, have you ever attacked that kind of thing and how do you how do you feel about writing those kind of songs? I don't know if I have actually. Mm. No. I don't think I have. In the next Waterboys album, not the one that's coming out this year, but the one that's coming out probably next year there, there's a little bit of that but no I, I don't I haven't written songs like that no not no. quite consciously anyway I guess yeah like we were saying earlier there's some songs that like can hold those meanings for people because in some ways it is a similar thing to and I guess for me there's there's a symmetry with Hold of the Moon in that sense that it's you know it's reflecting someone's like this, this beautiful side of someone and this beautiful qualities that people have. And for me, I guess the other thing that I thought is, you know, the last verse of Hold of the Moon, where there's, it's, it's a lot more lyrical than some of the previous ones. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of there's, you know, those ideas kind of coming into it where that bridge feels a bit similar. It's like all of a sudden, it's like there's all this other in this information that we want to get in that's important to this, this part. So what's the question? 
I don't know if there was actually a question there. <laughs> I was just seeing I some... do that thing of, of expanding the structure. Mm. I can't think of a, a specific instance where I thought I've got so much to say here, I need to expand it. I'm more, more coming at it from the other side of, um, it's a more instinctive thing for me. Uh, uh, and of course, this may be the way it worked for Taylor too. Mm. As I approach a bridge or a, or a last verse, I get a sense inside that it needs to be longer because the emotional weight of the song hasn't yet been delivered. Mm. And so I'm going to make this verse longer to get to the payoff and then I'll write it. That's how it works for me. I've got a song on the, the on, um, a, a song in the new world was on called Once We're Brothers and it was written by Robbie Robertson, the great oh, Robbie Robertson of the band. And Once We're Brothers is quite a recent song of his. It's an absolutely beautiful song, a very moving song about his relationship with the, the members, his co-members of the band. And, and I think particularly with Leland Helm uh, and he and Leland were, were um, at odds for a very long time. Uh, not reconciled for a very long time. And, and the, the main thrust of the song is Once We're Brothers, Brothers No More. And such a beautiful song. And yet, when I listened to Robbie's version, I thought, I wish he'd said more. He comes out of the bridge and, and the, the bridge is very beautiful. But instead of going into a last verse that delivers the payoff that I'm wanting to hear, he goes straight back to the chorus and that's the end of the song. And I was listening to it and I was thinking, there's something more I, I want to hear. So I did something that I, I've never done in my life before. I wrote the next bit of someone else's song and I wrote a final verse. And uh, I thought, oh, I can never use this. It's just an exercise, but it's been good fun. Mm. Uh, and and uh, I sent it to, to one of my band members uh, with the lyric and, and he said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to record this in my, in my home studio. I'm going to send it back to you, do a vocal and we'll just see what happens. So we did it. We recorded it. We ended up with a nice, beautiful version of Once Were Brothers with the extra verse uh, and with some other lyric changes that I'd, I'd put in. Really naughty changing all Robbie's lyrics. And uh, it, it came out so well, I thought, well, what are we going to do with this? We could ask Robbie, couldn't we? Ah, he's going to say no. So I talked to my manager, who's based in New York and, and who knows all the, the big hitters in the music business. I said to him, look, I've, I've taken some liberties with this Robbie Robertson song. Do you think, what do you think of it? And if you like it, do you think we can ask Robbie for permission? So he did like it and he wrote to Robbie for permission. And about two days later, we got an email saying, Robbie says, fine. Go ahead. He always likes what the Waterboys do. Go ahead. So it's on the new record. So that was that was a case where I felt instinctively there's something else needs to happen. There's a payoff. Not happened yet. I'm going to deliver it. And that's how it works for me with songs. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, that's, yeah, we're looking forward to hearing that. So that's on the, the album coming out soon. It is, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to hearing that one. Brilliant. Well, uh, thanks a lot for your time, Mike. It's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome, Ben. My pleasure too. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, so really, I'll put all the links in the description. Um, and yeah, I'll look forward to the new album and uh, hopefully seeing you next time you're, uh, you're over here. Where are you based, Ben? Uh, based in Leeds. Okay. I almost caught you in Donegal um, a few months ago. Yeah. When I was I was going to my family from Donegal and I was going to visit and uh, I think you were playing in uh, 
Where was it now? It was somewhere nearby, though. Like the... Guido, yeah, that was it. Yeah. He didn't miss anything. The gig didn't happen. I heard, yeah. I think one of my cousins was there. And I think we got there like the day before and we were like, oh, could we get to the gig? Was it, was it a weather thing? Yeah. Yeah. Weather and danger. Danger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'll get to see us um, before too long anyway. I hope so. I yeah. hope so. Come by and say hello. Send me an email to let me know you're coming. Oh, we'll do, yeah. That'd be great. All right, man. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. And uh, yeah. thanks, for, thanks for shooting in, everyone. I'll be back with the episodes. Let, and let me know when it's been broadcast and I'll, I'll tweet and so on. I oh, will do, Mike. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.